I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Oh boy, that was a long time ago. Pop music aficionados will immediately recognize this quote. You may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? As the 2020 election season engulfs America, it is really incumbent on all of us to ask the question put forth by good old David Byrne. And if we really want to find a way out of here back to a functioning democracy, we must invest some energy learning. Well, How did we get here? Trumpism, of course, did not come out of nowhere. He stunned the powers that were of the Republican Party and won. On the other hand, the powers that were and may still be there in the Democratic Party successfully turned back their insurgent challenge to their power and control and proceeded to lose what many agree should have been an easy win in 2016. In his new book, Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule, Author Cedric de Leon analyzes two pivotal crises in the American two-party system, the first resulting in the demise of the then-dominant Whig Party and secession of 11 southern states back in 1861, and the present crisis splintering the Democratic and Republican parties leading to the election of Donald Trump. The two-party system has been, or perhaps more correctly had been, a solid foundation of politics and government for well over a hundred years. De Leon maintains that the two-party system has actively shaped both national stability and breakdown. The book posits the question of when the two-party system itself is unable to absorb an existential challenge to its power. Then what? We've seen it before in history that fascist strongmen sometimes emerge and democracy is but a wonderful memory. Well, with that lighthearted introduction, our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Cedric de Leon, the author of the book Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. Thanks for being with us, Cedric. Thanks, Bert. Cedric de Leon is director of the Labor Center and associate professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's the author of two previous books, The Origin of Right to Work and Party and Society, and co-author of a third entitled Building Blocks, How Parties Organize Society, and that's Blocks, B-L-O-C-S. Prior to becoming an academic, he was by turns an organizer and a local union president, uh, yeah, president in the American labor movement. Well, again, thanks for being with us. What, what stimulated you to write this book? Why, why is it needed, and who is the target audience? Well, the target audience for me is the educated public. I mean, I think that we we heard a lot in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election about the importance of growing uh, economic inequality, about anti-immigrant sentiment on the ground and changing moral values and so forth, and nobody was talking about the fact that 
political parties and politicians might be responsible for what we're going through right now. And so I thought, well, uh, there needs to be a corrective here based on serious historical research. And so I wrote this book um, comparing political crises from the U.S. Civil War to the Great Depression and the election of Donald Trump. Yeah, there are a few crises we've been through already. What about the consent of the governed? You know, it, it's sort of taken for granted by pretty much everybody that the legitimacy of our government is because we consent to it. What about that? How, where where do you think that is now? And I guess we'll talk about uh, what happened with that leading up to the uh, the war against the South, the so-called American Civil War. What about that consent of the governed? How important is that and how... How far do you think we may have strayed? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's important to say that we're not always in crisis. In fact, we're rarely in crisis. I mean, when I say yeah, the Civil sure. War, Great Depression, the election of Donald Trump, I mean, there, there are only but so many moments uh, in American history, and in Thank fact, goodness. in the history of, of democracies in which this sort of thing happens. But every once in a while, you do have situations like the one that we're in now. And I would say that we're in crisis, um, in the sense that, you know, the the American public um, has very little faith uh, that the federal government will do what is right. Um, as a matter of fact, the Pew Research Center uh, published uh, a report um, uh, in in the last few years. Actually, it's it's um, it's showing the same result over and over again, and that is that we are at the lowest level of public confidence in the federal government um, since. Uh, Pew Research Center started asking the question in 1958. Fully 19% of all Americans polled say that they uh, have some trust or a lot of trust that the federal government will do what is right. And I think that is astonishing. And if you look at that, if you look at that trend line um, on the graph, um, I, I mean, I think, I mean, I was horrified to see it. I'm sure you would be too. And I think that that means something, right? I mean, when when the vast majority of the American public, that is to say, 80 percent, do not have faith that the federal government will do what is right, we are in trouble. That is for sure true. And and I'm reminded, I'm I'm getting up in my years. I was born in 1950, and I remember during the 1950s. Everybody understood. I mean, coming out of the Roosevelt uh, New Deal, that yeah, the government was there to protect us. I remember, as a little kid, uh, asking my mother about. Uh, uh, there was some news about uh, radiation falling on uh, the grass that cows ate, and asked my mother if everything was safe. And she said, "Oh, don't worry. The government will make sure everything is safe." We had that a long time ago, and I wonder. You know, the election of Donald Trump. It seems every election year is either a more of the same or we want change. T clearly, 2016 was a we want change. And I think that relates to what your research finds, that uh, people lost faith in uh, the government uh, serving us. And w the two-party system is supposed to be there for us and, and has been to, uh, you know, absorb uh, radical threats and real threats and, and to be a, a way of maintaining stability, that there's one party and another party. And it seems that, uh, boy, it may be in trouble now. It may be a crisis, as you say. And, and your book focuses on two pivotal crises in American history, the first of which led to the war against Southern independence, commonly known as the Civil War, and the factors leading up to the election of Donald Trump. You call this way of figuring out what happened in both examples the crisis sequence. Please take a few minutes to explain what you mean by that, the crisis sequence. 
Right. Well, the crisis sequence typically uh, begins with an unanticipated uh, challenge to the power of the political establishment. Um, In our contemporary crisis, that was the Great Recession of 2008, the worst economic downturn uh, in the history of the United States since the 1930s, um, and in, um, in the 1840s, that major event was the unexpected defeat uh, of Martin Van Buren for the Democratic uh, presidential nomination. Um, what ended up happening as a result of these unanticipated um, events was that there was a mass defection on the ground from one political party to another. Um, in the case of uh, 2008, obviously a mass defection from moderate Republican voters in the suburbs to uh, to the Obama uh, coalition, um, and um, and in uh, in the 1840s, um, a mass defection uh, into um, uh, the Manifest Destiny coalition, you know, for for lack of a uh, a, a better term. Um, so. Um, uh, and then the third um, episode is is what I call reabsorption, um, where the political establishment uh, does not take uh, the defection lightly. It doesn't like losing power, and so it it re-strategizes, uh, changes party names, uh, changes uh, policies, uh, changes candidates, and uh, and they hope that in doing so, uh, they'll show the American public that they're very sorry indeed for what they what they did or did not do, uh, and they try to guide the American public back to a uh, kind of politics as usual, and whether they succeed or not um, leads to the fourth. Um, episode in the sequence, which is either crisis or containment. If the establishment succeeds um, in bringing the American public back to politics as usual, you don't have crisis, you have a containment, as uh, as we did during the Great Depression, uh, FDR and the New Deal. Um, and if, uh, if the establishment fails, um, uh, usually by way of a, a backlash, um, then what you have is a is a crisis um, of hegemony in which the people generally withdraw their consent to be ruled by establishment uh, political elites. Hmm. So it's, yeah, it's contingency, defection, reabsorption, and, and either crisis or containment. That's the crisis sequence. Wow, interesting. And I can see how you know it, it's somewhat amusing that I'm not sure if it was after the 2008 or the 2012 election when the Republican Party, in licking its wounds, uh, thought that they need to moderate a bit and appeal more to to black and Hispanic voters. And they chose not to do that. They chose not (laughs) to do that. They won. Well, that may have been partially because, you know, the DNC forced their chosen one on us. But that's another story. How, how might our eventual knowledge and understanding of the Civil War sequence help us better respond to the rise of Trump? We can always learn from history, well, I think. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I think, so I, I, I think that um, uh, folks read their contemporary political situation and try to... Um, reconstruct events looking backward um in time uh to basically affirm you know why why we are in the situation that we're in that happened in the 19th century and it's happening now right so folks when they try to explain Donald Trump they say well you know it's um perhaps it's it's because um 
of um, of uh, neo-Nazism and uh, and economic nationalism and all of these other kind of like ideologies that are attributed to uh, the Trump program. And you know, one thing that the that the Civil War teaches us is that actually, you know, what we end up with is not uh, what actually started off the sequence in the first place. And what I argue in this book is that. Um, the main reason we have Donald Trump today is because um, of the suppression of um, Obama's progressive agenda, right? What was then called in 2008 the New New Deal. Basically, you have you know Clinton Democrats from the inside of the White House um, and Senate Republicans with their allies on the ground in the in the Tea Party that essentially kill uh, most aspects of of the New New Deal. And the result of that process, essentially the the forced failure of the Obama agenda, I argue, lead to the um, election of Donald Trump. Whoa, that is interesting. You know, there's been uh, so much ink put to paper about Donald Trump. It is pretty amazing. It's, I guess, a boom time for book writers. But I had not heard that before, and that I find is interesting. I have thought, a little bit of a side note, that... You know, Bernie Sanders was obviously a lot more progressive and, and more of a what I consider traditional FDR Democrat than Hillary Clinton was. So that progressive agenda clearly was suppressed by the party. I do believe uh, since it was a, a year calling for change that, uh, you know, had somebody with that agenda been the standard bearer, I think the party might have been done better. And it's, you know, it's not worthless to look at what ifs. It it could have happened there. But that's, I had not heard that put before, that the suppression of Obama's more progressive agenda led to Trump. Uh, you know, people try to go for the center, but uh, it doesn't work all that well. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, I, my my argument is is this. It's sort of a, it's a kind of, two-pronged um, argument, because we can't really understand the election of Donald Trump without knowing what happened both inside the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party. Um, so, you know, on the left, um, Clinton Democrats um, dur- during the transition and in, um, in the White House um, essentially um, prevented uh, President Obama and his progressive allies from realizing the uh, the, the more New Deal uh, type initiatives that uh, they wanted to um, to you know to institutionalize um, in in that time, and the result is that um, social inequalities, uh, racial economic inequalities, gender inequalities, and so forth just grew and festered. Right? I mean, the promise of the Obama agenda was that you know the Democratic Party was going to come into office and 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 begin to address some of these social ills. Um, and with the neoliberalization of the Obama administration by Clinton Democrats, um, you know, you you don't get that. Um, you, you don't get the promised alleviation of um, of social uh, inequality. And the result is that you know you have these mass movements, these insurgencies on the left that that spring up to challenge um, the Obama White House, right? At first, it's uh, Occupy Wall Street in 2010. Mm -hmm. And then with the killing of uh, Trayvon Martin in 2011, you have the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, And then, of course, you have um, the the Sanders campaign. And all of these 
different insurgencies are centered on inequalities that were never addressed by this promised um, uh, progressive agenda that Obama was swept into office with. And on the right, uh, you have a different sort of dynamic. It doesn't happen, obviously, in the same way, because ideologically they're very different, right? Um, You know, what the Senate Republicans um, end up doing in this period, and I think we all know the story, but not quite in this framework, is that, you know, they partner with this grassroots uh, kind of organization uh, called uh, called the Tea Party, which mm-hmm. is actually s- several different organizations with mm-hmm. actually a lot of elite, you know, Republican elite support. Um, the problem is that when the Senate Republicans partner with the, with the Tea Party, um, they end up um, letting uh, a Trojan horse into the party. They they welcome um, extremist elements into the GOP, which then proved to be um, a nightmare uh, later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, most famously in 2013, when Tea Party candidates, um, you know, inaugurate that the, the government shutdown. Um, but you know, it really comes to fruition with the 2016 Republican nomination uh, process, mm-hmm. in which r- really no. No major Republican candidate could 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 defeat um, Donald Trump, right? I mean, the Republican Party is sort of famous for being able to impose, right? <laughs> you know, a dominant uh, political figure on the on the rank and file, and in this instance, they were unable to yeah. because they allowed uh, the Tea Party uh-huh. uh, and birthers and all of these other folks um, into really the halls of power. Um, so, so, so you have an Obama agenda that is suppressed. Right. The left is in insurgency uh, because they're not getting their, uh, you know, the agenda. promised alleviation of social inequality. And then you have the GOP, which has let the Trojan horse in of the extreme right into their party. And that is the recipe that I argue leads to the election of Donald Trump. Wow, interesting. So they're, in a, in a way, both sowing the seeds of their own demise. Uh, fascinating. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, we are... Uh, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive with your help, dear listener. Our guest today is Cedric de Leon, and talking about his new book, Crisis! Exclamation point, when political parties lose the consent to rule. Yeah, branding. What, what people, you know, people used to look at the Democratic Party and Republican Party and, you know, kind of see what there is to see. If, you know, something was hoisted up the flagpole, you'd kind of know what it is. But I, I think as you're describing, both parties... <laughs> we're redefined. We're, we're redefined from, uh, and and people didn't know what they were particularly, and p- perhaps they become less important. Wow, there is a lot to talk about, and you know, your book does <clears throat> go into uh, the importance of learning the uh, uh, crises, the crisis sequence that led to the, the the civil war, and. I often think that, you know, historical revisionism is not necessarily a bad thing. Myth often serves to mask real history, which may be profoundly uncomfortable to face and be very disquieting to what has become our mythic basis of reassurance. What has served as conventional wisdom about the war against secession, and that's how I think of it, that it was because the rich and powerful demanded that the country protect their personal property, the enslaved people. Now, what what is wrong with that version that's pretty much conventional wisdom now? 
Well, there's two things wrong with it. First of all, it's wrong. Uh, it's, it's empirically just the exact opposite. Um, and secondly, it doesn't address the question of timing, of why the Civil War uh, begins in 1861 and not before. So let's go back to the wrong part. As it happens, the largest um, slaveholders in the South were the Union's uh, most strident advocates, right? Folks... Folks just assume, well, you know, these are the largest slave owners. Uh, there is a threat to uh, slavery, so uh, these slave owners must have been uh, the vanguard of the secessionist uh, Southern rights cause. And in fact, it's the exact opposite. And and it makes sense when you stop to think about it, right? Because the part of the reason why these folks become so rich and powerful is that they have important business partners in the northeastern United States. Uh-huh. We buy uh, the folks, cotton. Fo- yes, of course, <laughs> because where where's the cotton going to be um going to be manufactured and turned into textiles and and clothing, uh-huh. right? Well, yes. it's 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 going to happen in the first mills in uh uh, in uh, in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and and throughout Massachusetts, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So 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 these slave owners become extraordinarily wealthy and powerful because they're able to trade with northeastern manufacturers in this period, and they're not about to throw all of that overboard, right? For some cockamamie idea of an independent southern confederacy they don't want it right and um and you know their party at the time which is the the whig party yes. the the leading the democrats right leading opposition before the republican party um wanted to have nothing to do with it uh, either and the whig party was the leading institutional obstacle to secession uh, in the south up until the secession conventions of 1861 so that's Right away, we have a we have a red flag, right? This this this, yeah, this really? slave owner thesis is wrong, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Um, so so the other thing, the other the other problem with that argument um, is that it doesn't explain the timing, right, of the Civil War. You know, if if the argument is that uh, you know the slave owners were were the leading advocates um, of of secession because they were because they wanted to protect their property. Well, the problem there is that slave owners always wanted to protect their so-called property. They always wanted to preserve slavery, right? Uh, even before actually the founding of the republic. Hmm. So the question then becomes: Why does the Civil War happen in 1861 and not before? Right. So so that's 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 my main. Um, that's that's my main issue, and you know, sort of like fast forwarding to to the to the present crisis, right? Um, you know, let's remember that in in 2016, you know, the the biggest and most prominent business elites, the most genteel capitalists mm-hmm. in the United States, were absolutely opposed to a Donald Trump presidency. No question. Right, oh, yeah. because here again was a sort of extremist candidate. Who the hell knew what he was going to do to their business interests with all of this talk about throwing NAFTA out the window and and, and so forth? Right. Um, I, I think that I think that one other lesson that we can draw, or another parallel that we can draw between the historical crisis sequence and the present crisis sequence, is really how conservative you know these entrenched business interests were. Mm. And if that's true, then we have to ask we have to ask a different kind of question. S- such as? 
I think you know one question with respect to the Civil War is why did the the party system crumble when right, it did, right. despite the largest slave owners' overwhelming support for the Union? No, that's the question that we got to ask, hmm. right? Um, so, so, do you see what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. because we we need to we need to understand why, despite elite support for the establishment, does the establishment crumble anyway? Yeah, what gets to the what gets to the populace? What motivates them? Uh, I've never been able to really figure that out. Y- you mentioned the, the Whig Party; they were a, a big party for a long time. As you say, it was. I, I think I'm correct that they were as dominant as the Democrats before the Civil War. W- tell us, please, what their positions were on slavery, unionism, and secession. Mm-hmm. Well, as the as the uh, party of the of the planter uh, elite, um, they were of course pro-slavery, but uh, they they believed that um, the the surest way to uh, ensure the preservation of slavery was to maintain the union, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. slavery um, relied not just on the extraction of cash crops from the soil, but also their sale yep. to to uh, British and Northeastern American uh, manufacturers, right? That mm-hmm. was the way that you were going to preserve slavery. Mm-hmm. And the notion, so, 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 so that was their that was their position uh, on the union, and that where that was their uh, position on slavery. They did not believe that the the surest way to preserve slavery was in an independent Southern Confederacy. Uh, they thought that that would increase taxes, um, that it would uh, it would uh, introduce trade barriers where there right. never had been uh, before. Uh, in shipping their crops uh, either overseas or uh, to the industrial northeast. Uh, And they thought also, by the way, that having an independent southern confederacy uh, would reduce uh, the the price of slaves, uh, which was, you know, um, in in addition to their land, their leading asset uh, in terms of of property. So for all of those reasons, they favored the Union, um, and and they were pro-slavery, but but did not want to uh, to uh, jump uh, with two feet in uh, to this idea of an independent confederacy. And, and you know, as you talk, I, I think about in both cases back, you know, leading to the Civil War and leading up to Trump, how it seems, if I have this right, that in both cases there was a genuinely conservative uh, elite business people in in both both parties that did not want to shake things up and yet there was the there were these movements in both cases on the ground popular movements that what happens with these you know business elites that they ignore this they they try to pretend it it's not there and make it go away that way how can they miss this do they try to absorb it or are they just blindsided and and in both cases uh you know crises resulted your reaction mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, that's that's essentially the argument uh, of the book, right? 
Look, we can always count on the political establishment to circle the wagons and try to protect their wealth and power. That's just that's just going to get. But they're not always effective, right? Yeah. And then the question then becomes: How you know will they succeed uh, in doing so, uh, or will it just uh, backfire fantastically? And I think that what we are living through right now is a kind is is that kind of uh, of backlash, right? Mm-hmm. Clinton Democrats who were interested in maintaining their power over the Democratic Party, yeah. right? Right, insisting on a kind of centrist bent to the entire organization, did not want uh, President Obama to upend. uh, You know that they did not want they did not want him to upend their power, right? Because obviously he had a he had a very strong uh, base that was independent of the Clinton Democratic base. Uh So so. You know what they did was they infiltrated the the transition team uh, and the White House. Yeah. The, as we know, you know there were plenty of Clinton Democrats and top posts within the White House, um, and 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 they thought they were going to this was this was going to be great, right? There there are private conversations um, between Larry Summers and and Rahm Emanuel, in, in which you mm-hmm. know they 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 say you know. Um, it's like there's there's no parent home here. Clinton would never have let us do this, right? Where they they were just basically running amok and running yeah. running public policy uh, for the White House, um, and um, and so they thought that they were they were doing a great job. Little did they know, of course, that their shenanigans, their palace intrigue, would lead to um, you know rebellions within the Democratic base, right? Because let's remember, I mean. As I, as we said at the t- at the top of the hour, like you know, you know this the Great Recession was the deepest economic downturn since the 1930s. I mean, I detail in the book just the sheer devastation to the economy and to working people in particular. Um, you know, wrought by by that uh, by that uh, downturn, and here we have Clinton Democrats running around the White House. You know, basically trying to contain the Obama uh, agenda, and they think it's great because they're in power. But on the ground, it's having a different effect. Mm. People are starting to get really, really angry that the Obama that the Obama White House is not doing what they promised to do. Okay, so we shouldn't really be we shouldn't be surprised that uh, approximately twelve percent of all those who voted for President Obama in 2008 voted for Donald Trump in 2016, right? Mm. Because a lot of folks who went through that Great Recession felt double-crossed, right, um, by by the Obama White House. And I think, you know, I I think that they're right to feel that way. I, I wish they hadn't voted for Donald Trump, and I wish that, I wish that, you know, um, that somebody else besides Hillary Clinton had been the nominee yeah. in 2016. Oh, yeah. But I, I don't, I don't fault their um, their sense that structurally speaking, nothing had really changed for many people in the real economy. I think that that's true. But uh, so many people, you know, that w- with the uh, bundling of of mortgages into bad, you know, loans out there, let they left a lot of people hurt, really hurt. That's interesting that some of the Clinton Democrats kind of undid or or took down some of the uh, agenda to actually do something. I wonder if they were involved in the uh, the bailout of the big banks. Uh, I mean, Obama did it and he got reelected. 
But uh, there was a lot of grumbling on the ground about that, that's for sure. And I wonder if maybe that led to some of the Trump stuff, too, because, you know, the average person uh, (laughs) doesn't like, I think. I mean, we talked about consent to the governed at the beginning, you know, when their tax dollars are being used to bail out the big guys who caused the problem in the first place. And the Democratic Party just kind of sits there and, and does that. Ooh, that's not good for the Democratic Party. Too late, we we learn generally. Uh, yeah, and and you looked into uh, you know flipping back and forth between the eighteen forties and fifties to the current day. You, you, what is it about? You looked at Tuscaloosa County, Alabama. Why? What did you learn from focusing there? Tell us about that. Well, I, you know, I I, ha- I needed to find some way to kind of discipline the analysis right um about about the civil war um, um you know s- southern hi- southern history is a <laughs> is a thorny field of study and so much has been written about it and the moment that you try to make huge generalizations about the entire south especially in the context of the civil war that's the moment when you start to get into really big trouble and so i i i wanted to ground my analysis of the Civil War in a in a case, um, and I wanted to choose a case other than South Carolina. You know, there, you know, a number of folks seem to assume that once South Carolina took the fateful step to secede from the Union first in in uh, in the winter of 1860, that everybody else just sort of seceded in a herd, blindly following South Carolina's example, and that simply isn't the case. And so I wanted to I wanted to um, to look at a state that. Um, you know that was in the vanguard of the secessionist cause for sure and was in the deep south but had its own you know set of independent kind of political struggles that they had to go through and alabama i thought was a good choice i mean it was it's uh, as we call it today we call it the heart of dixie and it and it housed the first capital of the confederacy montgomery alabama mm-hmm. so it symbolically speaking i really wanted to look at um uh, at at alabama uh, the other piece is that Folks don't necessarily know this, but Tuscaloosa was was the capital of Alabama for much of the antebellum period before it moved to to Montgomery. So there was a lot of action. Like if you really wanted to know what kind of Southern rights politics were and how they were interacting with the Whig Party and you know the kind of competing political interests of small farmers and large slave owners, um, then. Tuscaloosa, at least at that time, was a very vibrant place, very active politically, um, and there were tons of newspapers and writings and diaries and letters. And you know, for a scholar, you 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 know, you have to sort of go where the data the data are, right? And yeah. so, so that's uh, that's that's where I went. And Tuscaloosa is a really great case because um, it's it's not all plantations. It actually there's a there, the entire uh, eastern part of the county is uh, poor white folks who tended to vote for the Southern Rights Democratic Party. So it really became this kind of Tuscaloosa was sort of like this cross section or a laboratory, if you will, of the kinds of politics that were roiling the South at the time, and it offered me the opportunity to actually you know, uh, look at some real people and, you know, um, and read up on what they said and what they believed and so forth. So the, so the, the, the perhaps alienation from the party elite could be seen there? 
Yes, uh, definitely. You know that Tus- Tuscaloosa had been um, had been a planter stronghold um, for um, for some time, um, and um, and when the backlash uh, mm-hmm. took hold in uh, in Tuscaloosa, um, you know the county, like many um, slave owning counties, um, flipped from the Whig Party to the Southern Rights Democratic Party. You could see that um, just by looking at um, mm-hmm. the vote from each precinct over time from 1844 to, um, to 1860. And uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Cedric de Leon, author of the new book, Crisis! Exclamation point, when political parties lose the consent to rule. And boy, we are kind of seeing that now, I think. And, you know, the American experiment has always been just that, the American experiment, holding together so incredibly huge a geographic country with its fairly distinct sub-nations, I think, has always been tenuous. As you write, the Whigs had one explanation as to why the whole thing held together and Democrats a different. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, sure. So um, the Democratic Party immediately before um, the Civil War um, was motivated by um, a legislative program called Manifest Destiny, right? Mm -hmm. Manifest Destiny is this, you know, um, this program of intense um, colonial expansion across indigenous lands in what was then still northern Mexico. And you know what they what they promised um, landless white voters um, was um, that if they if they could only um, get the political support to um, to engage in these wars uh, of expansion, then uh, these poor white folks would have access to cheap land out west, mm-hmm. um, and that they could be economically independent uh, men. Mm-hmm. Instead of being um, wage slaves in uh, the first factories um, in the Northeast and and Upper Midwest, um, and on the other on the other side, the Whig Party um, argued that this this perilous expansion through mm-hmm. a series of skirmishes and continental wars uh, was a giant risk. Um, and um, you know, wanted the the American public to focus on the territory that it had already conquered, and to try and develop those places into prosperous uh, local economies in which people from all social classes uh, could uh, could benefit and become economically independent. Right, mm-hmm. so. Um, you know, one historian has argued that you know that the Democratic Party advocated freedom through the expansion through space, mm-hmm. whereas the Whig Party um, advocated freedom through uh, development over time. Hmm. And so th- that was that was the the those were the politics that comprised the political equilibrium of the party system uh-huh. right before the Civil War, and for a while it worked. Right there's a there's a clash there. Right, yeah. one says 
let's take over more territory. The other one says, why don't we stop taking over territory and actually make the territories that we have a little bit better, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and you, can, you can already see there the kind of like conservative tendencies, right? Mm. The business elite as the rank and file of the Whig Party, right? There's, there's cautiousness there, mm. right? There's business acumen involved uh, in that. Whereas the Democrats were these sort of professional political operatives um, who were, you know, very much into with um, with the sentiment of um, of less affluent white men uh-huh. on the ground, um, and and they and you know the first populists, you know we call them we throw that word populists uh, around a lot. I mean the first populists in the United States were of course Jacksonian Democrats in the early half of the of the nineteenth century, and they played to the the deepest a- aspirations and anxieties of these poor white men in the Northeast and promised them you know, the world, um, that, you know, that they could become, they could realize their great dream mm. of becoming, you know, becoming uh, independent farmers in the West. Boy, does that remind me of somebody who's a little bit orange-looking, who's in the White House now. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, appealing to angry white men and appeal, a- appealing to their fear and, uh, you know, I, I do think, you know, as I was in South Central Pennsylvania recently, I was thinking, why is this such Trump country? They work hard, they play by the rules, but they're not getting ahead. And here's this guy who said, you know, who, who kind of intimated, well, you can be like me, just don't play by the rules, you know, and just, you know, forget fairness and, and, and the law and things like that. And there's an appeal there. And it, it the power of angry white you know, lower income men. It continues to this day. And, you know, I would think the Democrats could say, well, let's develop what we have in place. You know, it's nice to have, it's so easy to have the bad guys over there. We've got to have a war and conquer more territory. It sounds like this applies to the 19th century as well as the 21st. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Right, right. Ah, well, which, which brings up, you know, there was the great expansion in the you know 19th century why was mexican session more of an issue than slavery when it came to the future of oregon and texas territories you know that's that that was a big deal back then yeah it was a it was a big deal back then and it it wasn't exactly um divorced from the issue of of slavery um but there had been a kind of just understanding because of the because of the fu- the smooth functioning of the two-party system, that when it came time to adjudicate what parts of the new territory would be free and which parts of the territory would be uh, slave, that you know they'd be able to to work it out. Um, and that turns out not to be the case. And it, and it's the dispute over the status of slavery in the in the Mexican session that leads directly to um, to the Civil War. And it had a great deal to do with uh, what what northern democratic politicians were seeing at that time, because the federal government um, insisted on annexing all of Texas and uh, acquiring as much of what was then northern Mexico as possible, yeah. uh, but then negotiated half of Oregon away to the British. And 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 these and these northern politicians started to connect the dots um, uh, to what they thought was a slave power conspiracy. Hmm. You know, even though the North was more populous, 
right? Um, uh, nevertheless, the South seemed to be getting its way, uh, whereas uh, Northerners uh, could expect uh, nothing from the from the federal government, and this created, you know, a great deal of tension between uh, Northern and um, and Southern uh, politicians, and and it eventuates in this moment where. Um, where a guy named Dil- David Wilmot from Pennsylvania attaches a proviso oh, to yes. to a bill that would have paid for these Mexican lands, uh, now known as the Wilmot Proviso, which prohibits slavery from any part <laughs> of of the Mexican session, and it 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 touches off uh, 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 political chaos, a, a bitter years long debate of over whether or not slavery would be permitted um, in um, in the the so called Western territories. Uh, so that's you know that's I, I I think that's what you're asking about. Uh, that's that's the that those were the that was the politics of of territorial expansion at that uh-huh. time and how that led to the Civil War. Yeah, interesting that uh, there's there's different. Uh, it it seems like you know the one way of preserving things is different from the other way of preserving things. Expansion versus uh, taking care of what you already have. And one thing I, I've wondered about, you know, and, and most Western countries, certainly in Europe, have a long tradition of class consciousness. We don't have that in the U.S. You know, what happened in that regard, you know, in like around 1860 or so? Something about the, the uh, discourse between uh, dependency and manifest destiny. Talk about that, if you would, please. And, wh- you know, why there's no class consciousness here? I'm curious about that. Well, um, there is class consciousness, um, but but it's 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 racialized, right? Uh-huh. In, in the sense that that makes it easier. In in, in in the sense that what happens with you know what we call today the modern American labor movement emerges after 1860 as as a as a, a white workers uh, movement. Right. Right. Um, it's 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 really a shame looking back on that moment and also into Reconstruction because there was a time there when white and black workers um, were organizing together in these biracial um, labor federations. Uh, first in the National Labor Union or NLU, um, and and later under the Knights of Labor, um, but. So much of the kind of social um, exclusion, the stigma of um, of blackness, um, and so forth, leads to the division of uh, of of those biracial federations into segregated right, right. Um, labor federations, and eventually, you know, black workers say, I. I we're not seeing any any progress right. being made through this these segregated unions. Um, we are going to we're going to work with the Republican Party to kind of to realize our uh-huh. um, our our civil rights. Uh-huh. Um, so 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 I, I would I would say that there are sort of, there are moments of this kind of interracial class uh, consciousness. I think today is actually um, potentially one of those um, one of those moments. And we can talk about that in, in, sure, in a little yeah. bit, but there, that that was certainly an important moment in which things could have gone a different way. 
uh, were it not for the racial politics and the and the and the racial divisions among the the working class in this country. Well, let's let's go with uh, what you started talking about there. The uh, where it is today. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you know, um, many of the folks who defected from the Democratic Party in 2016 were uh, white working class and middle class voters. Yes. Um, generally, in a in a, in, a, in a couple dozen counties in the upper Midwest, places like Macomb County uh, in Michigan, uh, which uh, defected in their mm. thousands to the to to the Trump coalition, um, and and so you know that is of course cause for alarm uh, for those who want to cultivate um, a class consciousness, who believe that the labor movement is is uh, is the way to address mounting uh, economic inequality. Um, on the other hand, I think you're also seeing um, now that working people are increasingly suspicious of the political establishment and are starting to realize again that the vehicle for their um, self-improvement is not political parties who have now proven themselves to be completely bankrupt of any progressive ideas that would help them, but actually their unions that had been there all along, okay, uh, but that they had not availed themselves uh, of uh, and had not, you know, worked with. And, and some of that, of course, has to, some, some of the blame has to, has to go to, to organized labor for not for not organizing uh, as much as they ought to. I say that as the director of the sure. Labor Center at UMass Amherst, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we bear some of that that burden. But what you're starting to see now is, um, is folks from across different nationalities, racial backgrounds, um, across different industries, um, organizing in... Um, in a moment of interracial class solidarity that we have not seen in many a year. Um, you know, when was the last time you can remember when when the workers in an entire occupation went on a general strike oh, yeah. in Kentucky or in West Virginia or, <laughs> or in That's Oklahoma? True. That's a good point. I mean, this is an extraordinary time. You know the 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 statistic is that you know back in 2017, roughly 70,000 workers had gone on strike that entire year, and in 2019, and 2019 of course is not over yet, um, over half a million workers um, have gone on strike. Mm. That is a giant qualitative shift in the militancy of the working class in this country, and if you look at who is striking. It's not just white men, right. right? It's not just women. It's not just immigrants. Uh, do you know what I mean? It is a it is a cross section of the different constituencies of um, of the labor movement, and I think that there is cause for optimism there. Uh huh. Yeah, and it seems to me that you know the the economic inequality now is similar, if not worse, than the Gilded Age in the eighteen nineties, and it seems. That <clears throat> the elites of both parties, you know, let's face it, they haven't wanted to touch that. And the people on the ground that aren't, you know, the super rich, they're not the one-tenth of one percent, uh, they get a little angry. And so where is there 
to go for them. You know, I think uh, people like Bernie Sanders have offered, you know, that the Democratic Party can be a challenge for that. But in general, you know, most of the the so-called centrists, you know, the the Bidens, the Buttigieg, they're not going to look at this stuff. But so, and, you know, in the 50s, when I grew up, there was a very strong labor movement, and we had widespread prosperity for, you know, not everybody. Obviously, black people were left out, but things have changed a little bit since then with regard to uh, to racial uh, consciousness. So I guess what I'm asking now is maybe uh, labor unions, the, the better channel for uh, addressing this, and how does that impact the power of and the power of working people on the uh, the two party system. Yes, I, I mean I think um, you know I, I will I will say this. My my point is not to say that you know working class people should not engage in party politics. My point is that working class people should engage party politics in a different way. And what I mean by that is that is um is that you know instead of phone banking for the democratic party or phone banking for the republican party what you're seeing right now is workers going out on strike yes and winning yes and suddenly realizing that oh actually um working through my union and organizing a mass movement is actually going to make a real difference in my life immediately, as opposed to going to the ballot box uh-huh. and voting from some for some politician who promises that mm-hmm. they're going to make my left my life better and that prosperity is around the corner and so forth. Stick with me, I'll set you free, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> um, uh, and they said, "Well, I don't know. Maybe I should spend more time doing this other thing, right? Maybe I should be working." you know, through, through my union. I think, I really think that that's what's happening right now. Um, and, and the result of that work is that they're actually moving the party system, the entire party uh-huh. system towards them, not just the Democratic Party, right? Just moments earlier, we talked about the fact that, you know, teachers in these deep red states, okay, are making Republican legislators um, agree to their demands for equity and justice. And they have a lot of public support. And, that's right. And they have public support. And, and so, so uh, I, uh, what I'm arguing for is a, kind, is a, is a politically independent huh. mass movement um, led, led but not led exclusively by, um, by the labor movement. Uh-huh. Um, which I think could create a dynamic within the political system in which the parties come to us instead of us kind of begging to the political parties, right? Yeah, because I, I, I would maintain that, you know, we, have, we actually have the power to, um, you know, to shape um, the, the policy agenda uh, for the next uh, for the next generation, and, and I think that workers are starting to realize, oh yeah, you know, we don't actually have to wait for a politician to get this done. We can get this done ourselves. Yes, yes, we can. <laughs> I heard that. Before. <laughs> yeah, but it was, yeah, it didn't quite work. It was undermined, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, and here we are. 
you know, the, back in, in the, the Civil War, you know, there was the, the uh, choice between a slaveholding republic and the birth of a liberal democracy, as, as you say. And now, you know, we're really at a point between democracy and fascism. That's some scary stuff. So, you know, and, and, and fascism has its appeal. People don't call it fascism. They call it, you know, they like, you know, the big strong man on the white horse coming in. Uh, but, uh, I mean, so, and, and, and you know, good old H.L. Mencken said, for every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. You, you, say, you say we need, you know, a, a complex solution, a, a, a murky solution, perhaps. What might that be? Get, you know, let's have a little optimism here. Yeah, I think uh, as as I alluded to in my in my last answer, I think that you know the problem is that we are waiting for a politician to come in on their white horse and right. save people. Right. 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 And that doesn't work. Um and and you know as the as as the saying goes, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Yes. Right? Because uh, uh, you know a moment's reflection will lead any person to to realize that every major step towards a more perfect union mm. every major democratic transition and expansion that has happened in the history of this country has come because of mass movements on the ground yeah. because, because otherwise the path of least resistance is for po- people in power to just sort of maintain their power right right Throw a few it, and it's it's that it's that groundswell of support from below, right, that forces the political establishment Absolutely. to address a need. Twas ever thus. Right? Always has been. It was ever, exactly. Exactly. And I think it's, it, you know, that's, I mean, we find ourselves in that situation now because oh, yeah. that is always the situation that regular folks find themselves in. You know where they have to actually take up arms or organize in a nonviolent way in order to force these people yep. to address their issues, and I think that is, you know, anybody who tries to say that there's another solution besides people, you know, taking their power seriously, right, uh, and making those in power bend to their will, is trying to take the easy way out. And it, there is no politician that we can elect, right that is going to solve all our problems. But if we dare to organize and build another mass movement again, I think that we can actually, we can actually control public, the public policy um, agenda uh, for the next generation. It just takes political will on the part um, of people on the ground to make that happen. And not accepting any sense of powerlessness, which is really dangerous. We could go on another hour. There's a lot more to talk about here, but we reached the end of the hour. The book, very interesting, Crisis, exclamation point, Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. Its author is Cedric DeLeon. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Good, Thank good you. stuff. Thank you. Can we find our way back to democracy?
Make your way back.